Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank, thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello folks, uh, welcome to another episode of Wisdom of Friends show. Today I'm really excited to introduce you to a good friend of mine. Her name is Jackie Bailey. And Jackie is an incredible communicator, as you're going to find out. And she has been a leader in the community uh, for many, many years. She founded uh, this consulting company called Emerald City Consulting in 2007. And she has also been a local director of the largest communication-focused nonprofit organization in the world. It's the Toastmasters International. She was also 2015 semi-finalist in the World Championship of Public Speaking, putting Jackie in the top 98 speakers of 33,000 competitors. And as a facilitator of communication and leadership workshops for youth ages 10 and 17, she has made an amazing difference in our community, folks. Not only that, she is also an author of Self-Centered Leadership, Becoming Influential, Intentional, and Exceptional. That was published in 2014. The book is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. And one of her primary messages is very counterintuitive. She talks about it's not only okay to be selfish and self-centered, but she will in fact tell you why you should be and how to develop those characteristics necessary to be self-employed and self-reliant in four self-centered principles, and we will be talking about that on this interview. So without further ado, I would like to welcome you, the one and the only Jackie Bailey. So ladies and gentlemen, I'll pull up a chair and listen in. So good evening, uh, Jackie. Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. Uh, I wanted to start off by telling you like uh, what my first impressions of you were when I met you at the Bellevue Improv Masters Club. Is that when we first met? Yes. uh, And uh, it was Jim Sultan who recommended me that I join that club. And the first thing that when you stood up to speak and you told a fabulous story, and the one thing that really stuck with me was what an amazing storyteller you are. And then when I kind of like learned a little bit more about your background and I found out that, you know, you had uh, gone all the way to the World Championship of Public Speaking at Toastmasters. And I was like, I got to learn from this lady. She knows something about communication (laughs) and leadership. And and I've known you since then. Um, I met you at different, I mean, at different conferences since then. And um, it's it's such such a being a delight to just know you and your leadership and uh, your contribution to the community. So, uh, welcome to the show, Jackie. Thanks. I, I'm honored to be here. And one of the things that uh, we start off our show is by asking our guest as to what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by and how have you applied it to your life? I personally like Ralph Smedley's description or definition of leadership. Ralph Smedley is, of course, as you know, the founder of Toastmasters International almost 100 years ago, and he defined leadership as the capacity to influence others to achieve worthwhile results. For me, having authored a book about leadership, that sums it up for me completely. I love the word influence that he uses in his definition Because influence to me makes us all leaders, because we all influence each other. Whether we recognize our influence on others' lives or not, we are influencing others every day. Even when we're not with them, we influence people. Therefore, for me, leadership is about influence, and that's why I really like that quote. It's my favorite quote on leadership specifically. I couldn't agree more. It's such a beautiful quote. I was reading through your bio, and one of the things that you started off your introduction uh, on your uh, bio data was about you strive to be selfish and (laughs) self-centered. And you say in your uh, introduction that it's not only okay to be selfish and self-centered, but you teach people how to be that 
And how to develop those characteristics necessary to be self-employed, self-reliant, and uh, your four self-centered principles. Uh, would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Of course. Usually when I say to people, I teach people how to be selfish and self-centered. They go, well, don't we do that really well already? <laughs> and perhaps we do. I think there's times when we're all a little bit selfish. But in this sense of the word selfish, it's actually a good thing. Because I found that in my experience as a leader, there are some particular qualities that make people exceptional leaders. My book is titled Self-Centered Leadership. Self being an acronym for those four qualities. And they are sacrifice, empowerment, love, and friendship. And I believe that when an individual can master those traits in their sphere of influence, they are an exceptional leader. And that requires being selfish, self-centered, self-employed in those characteristics. And when you become self-reliant on those things, that's when you are truly exceptional. That's really wonderful. One of the things, Jackie, I'm curious about is uh, you are an author and you also do business consulting and you work with uh, youth uh, with their communication and leadership skills. And what I'm really curious about is how did that journey began to doing what you're doing today? Did you always know that this is what you were meant to do or how did you come about finding your purpose and passion? Well, that's a great question and it's been a long journey. I grew up in an abusive home and I didn't have much of, an avo- much of a voice at that point. I didn't have anyone to go to and so I just became a survivor. And when I grew up (laughs) and got married fairly young, I started to try to find who I was. And especially when the point came when I needed to break the silence of my abusive life. And I paid my way through dental school to become a dental assistant. Mm. And I did that for about 10 years while I was getting married and having children all at the same time. And then I went into dental surgery and did that for about 15 years as a surgical technician for an oral surgeon. That was my most favorite part of dentistry. And then after that, I managed a few dental practices and I started to get a little bit bored with that and thought, well, I have all these skills and all this experience. This was after about 30 years in dentistry. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I didn't want to be a dentist. And I didn't want to be a hygienist. But I felt that I had a lot of knowledge and I'd helped several practices become very financially successful. And I was talking to a hygienist friend of mine one day and I was telling her about my frustration and I just didn't feel like I wanted to stay here anymore in the, in the business management realm. And she said, well, what do you, what do you envision yourself doing? And I said, well, I think I could see myself training people, doing workshops and teaching people how to do things differently and Mm. how to tweak processes so they can have more success. She said, well, that sounds to me like a consultant. (laughs) And that was the first time I actually thought, well, maybe that's how I might define myself as some sort of a consultant. So I relied on my experience of dentistry and started my business, Emerald City Consulting, which was really a focus on dental management. And I marketed myself to dentists and people that were in that field of medicine in hopes that I could help their practices be more successful based on the the principles I learned, the experiences that I'd had working for both really good people and Mm. people that were not great leaders. I even learned from them. And then after a time, which I should say, selling soft skills to doctors is not easy. (laughs) (laughs) They it's, it's because soft Mm. skills are important, but they don't necessarily create profitability right away. Mm -hmm. It's, It's something that happens after your team is working in a harmonious way, then you see the profit. So it's, it's not as an an easy a sell as, 
as you might think. And it, it was frustrating and very challenging for a while. And at that point, when I started my own business, I realized that although I didn't have fear of public speaking, I realized that I could increase my ability to approach people I didn't know and talk with them about what I was doing and, and who I was and how I might help them. And I was at a conference. I joined a group of dental management consultants and went to their convention, so mm-hmm. to speak, in South Carolina that same year I started my business. And I was listening to the keynote speaker whose name was Jeannie Robertson. Mm. She's fabulous. She's, I think she calls herself a humorist. And she just tells the funniest stories about her life. If you enjoy stories, you need to check her out. I will. <laughs> and she was the keynote speaker at that convention. And I sat there in awe, watching and listening to her. She was this gorgeous, tall, former Miss North Carolina. Hmm. But she was, at that time, in her 60s. And she could just grasp the audience with these funny stories and at the same time take us into this place where I just felt so inspired. And she just made me feel so many things and I'd never seen a speaker do that before. So unlike myself, I when she was finished talking, I pushed my way through the crowd to get to her. And I finally got up to her and I asked her, how did you do that? (laughs) How did you talk in such a manner that was funny, but inspiring at the same time? Mm. How did you reach into my chest and pull out my heart? Wow. She said, well, thank you. But then she said, I belong to the National Speakers Association. So I get a lot of practice and I've had a lot of help developing these talents. Then she looked me right in the eye and she said, if you want to be a better speaker, you need to join Toastmasters. And I said, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) And she told me. And so when I got home from that trip, I typed into a search engine, Toastmasters in Sammamish, which is where I was living at the time. And lo and behold, there was a club that met just a few miles from my house. So I went to the, the very next meeting that they were having and I was ready to join because Jeannie Robertson told me to. And that's how I got into Toastmasters. And And once I did that, I went into leadership. You know, it's a nonprofit organization. Everyone's volunteering their time. And I, someone said to me, I want you to be the vice president membership of our club. And I'd only been a member a few months. And I said, well, okay. So I did that. And then they asked me to be the president a little while later. And I said, okay. And then when people continued to ask me to take on more leadership responsibilities, I said, okay. And I didn't realize that Toastmasters offered more than just the ability to improve your communication. But there's a huge aspect of leadership that a lot of people don't know about. And that five or six years of leading that organization made me realize some principles of leadership that I didn't know before. I was used to training little tiny teams of dental personnel, you know, five or six people maybe, but I was leading that organization. I had a hundred people that were under me as leaders of their own little sections of the district. And I learned what it really meant to lead and inspire and influence people. And then I realized that leadership should be the focus in my own business and my consulting business. So that, so I changed my focus from dental management consulting to really just how do you lead? How do you mm. communicate with people? And again, it was still a hard sell with dentists, but I realized that those principles are universal. So I began to just open up my ability to, to talk to any business owner, organizations, churches, that kind of thing. And from there, it just kind of bloomed into what it is now, which is You know, I give a lot of keynote speeches to companies and organizations. I do a little bit of consulting, but now I do a lot of training with these kids, Mm. the the youth that are ages 10 to 17, and I offer these workshops to them. And it's just amazing to actually see the wheels turning in their heads when they get it and they see how communication can really take them places. If If they're good communicators, 
they can have success, not just for the moment that they're in school, but for the rest of their life. And that is such an amazing spectacle to be able to see them get it. They have that aha moment. So I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying what I'm doing more than I ever have. That is so great, uh, Jackie. And I'm, uh, we as an organization at Toastmasters are delighted that you decided to come and be part of the organization because we've all learned so much from you. And I want to get to this uh, youth uh, leadership that uh, you teach all the young kids. But first, I would also like to uh, reference your one of your accomplishments at uh, the World Championship of Public Speaking, because you were one of the top uh, 98 speakers amongst uh, 33,000 competitors. So tell us that journey. How did that uh, did you know that you wanted to compete or how did that story unfold and what was that experience like going all the way to the International Conference of Toastmasters International and I believe they are in over 150 countries and they, each one of them uh, sends their best speaker to compete mm-hmm. and to uh, have reached that semifinals at that level is no uh, uh, no joke. It's, it's <laughs> got to be like really, really good and we know how good you really are. So tell us about that. Well, it was quite a journey. It was a painful period of growth, actually. (laughs) I don't think it's meant to be painful, but when you get outside of your comfort zone, it's always a little bit scary and sometimes painful as well. During the years that I was leading in the Toastmaster organization, I was ineligible to compete. That was about six years of time. And I competed a little bit prior to going into leadership, and I won maybe in an area contest or something like that, but I, I just didn't feel like I had much of a message. And when I was then eligible to compete, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And I came up with a speech that was really a way to share my abusive experience as a child. And not that it was about abuse, but it was really about the forgiveness that came from the abuse. And that's what I wanted to focus my message on was was that, yes, horrible things happen, but we can control the outcome when we can forgive. And when love, we do it for the the right reasons, which which is love. That was my message. And surprisingly, I won at my club contest and then I competed at the area and I won there. And as I continued to move upward in the, in each phase of the contest, the speech would change a little bit. It would become a little bit more specific on some things. And I would add a little bit more elements of this or that to it. And then when I was ready to compete at the district level, I worked day and night on that, and I went and practiced my speeches a lot at different clubs, got a lot of feedback. And at the district contest then, I felt that it was probably the best version of that speech I had given. And what was amazing to me is people coming up to me afterwards and saying, I've been through something similar. Thank you for telling me how I can heal from this. Mm. And that was the best part of winning, was that my message influenced. It mattered to somebody. And now the next step was to get to those semifinals. Mm. And I had about six weeks' time to really bring my speech up to a world-class level. Mm. And yet... The painful part came because people started telling me, well, you know, you can't talk about that subject matter Mm. in a a world setting, in a global setting, because there's so many different cultures that will be there. And some people will be offended by that, or some people won't understand it. And and you might be talking more to women than men. And so you're turning off 50% of your audience. And I listened. Mm. I listened to them. Mm. And I began to, to try to tweak my message so that it was still the same message, but maybe told in a different way. And the frustrating part came is that every time I gave that speech to a club to practice it and to get feedback, I got 
more and more feedback that convinced me in some way that I needed to do something different. And I probably gave that speech in that six week period, 70 times. Mm. And it was never the same speech Mm. each time because I had to change something or do something different. And then I, and then I was also working on a second speech because the way things go at the international convention is during the semifinals, you give your speech. Now it doesn't have to be the speech you've already been giving. It could be a, a different speech, but then you have to give a completely different speech if you make it to the final. So I had two speeches I was working on. And one night was 10 days before the convention and before I would be there in Las Vegas to compete at the world level. I gave both of those speeches at a club. And one person there had been doing a little, had had coached me in the past, but hadn't coached me at all on this particular speech. And he said, he was there that night and he, I I felt like I was publicly flogged. Now, I wasn't, I'm sure, but emotionally I felt like it because I finally felt that I was ready with these two speeches. And then I was told, no, you're not ready. And neither one of these are going to be the right kind of speech to give. So this was 10 days before. Mm. And I cried for about three days just out of frustration and feeling like, what am I going to do? I want to give a good message. I thought this was it, but evidently it's not. And I shouldn't have listened so much to people. I've learned that now. But I wrote two new speeches on the plane to Las Vegas. So when I got to the semifinals and the night that I got on that stage and gave a speech that no one had ever heard before and that I had not given to an audience before, It was a little bit scary, but it was also so cool (laughs) because I got on that stage and the lights were shining on me and there were probably 750 people in the room and I was competing against nine other people from all over the world. And I just realized, I don't care what happens from this point on. I am going to enjoy this moment. The seven minutes that I have to stand here, I'm going to just enjoy this experience and not worry about any of the frustrating emotions I felt up until that moment. Mm. And I think I gave a good speech. I was one woman in a group of 10 contestants and I thought, well, surely I'm going to stand out. Surely, (laughs) even though my message might be similar to someone else's, I'm the only woman. So maybe in this semifinal, I'm going to stand out, but I I don't think I did that much. I didn't place. They take the, you know, they place the, the top three and I was disappointed to not place. I didn't think I'd win, but I thought, for sure I had a chance to place, and I didn't. And that was very disappointing to me, only because everything then hit me at once, and I felt like, you know what? I didn't give give the message I wanted to give. Mm. I let too many people influence me to change the message I wanted to give because they thought it wouldn't be right for everybody, and I shouldn't have cared. I should have just been strong enough to say, this is my message, and I'm going to give it, even if it's not right, even if it's not well accepted, this is what I have to say, and I'm going to say it. And I won't do that again. I won't make the same mistake again. But all in all, it was a very growing experience because I feel like now I know the elements mm-hmm. that belong in a really good seven-minute speech. I know the process is painful, and I know that it has to be authentic for it to be well received. And so those are some powerful lessons I learned. And I try now to be authentic in everything I do and not listen to those voices who say, no, you need to change your message. I don't want to change my message anymore. I want to give the message that I'm supposed to give. So it it was a good, it was a good growing period, but it was, it was tough. (laughs) That's such a fascinating story, Jackie. And I'm glad that uh, you're part of her, as I said earlier, part of the Toastmasters uh, Pacific Northwest organization because we get to learn so much from you and your experience and you made all of us proud here so thank you for thank that. Thank you. Uh, I want to take a step back and uh, kind of like uh, ask you about your childhood years. What was that like? Uh, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life? I grew up in a home with uh, three brothers and a sister 
one of the brothers being a twin brother. <laughs> and we were the youngest. My twin brother and I were the youngest in that, my parents' biological family. My sister was the oldest, and she was 12 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So by the time my brother, my twin brother and I were about eight, she was married and out of the house, which left me with the three boys. And my abuser was not my father. It was not my mother. It was my, one of my older brothers. Hmm. And it uh, went on for, from about the time I was eight to when I was about 14 or 15. And at 14 or 15, I started to say, no, this isn't happening any longer. And so I did stop it. I did stop it at one point. But again, no one ever knew. No one knew. My parents were not happily married. (laughs) They were arguing all the time. And the home was not a happy place. And when they divorced, Mm. when I was 11, it was actually a good thing. But then my mother remarried about a year later, and then my dad remarried a year after her and adopted three boys with his new wife. So I had three more brothers that were all younger than me, and I lived with my mom and stepdad. Now, he was a fabulous man, but with all of that turmoil, there was really no one to tell. If I were to open up about what was happening, it would have just caused more pain in the family and... I didn't feel like I could do that. Well, I got married at the age of 19 and then had my first baby a year later. So I was just just 20 years old when I had my first child and 22 when I had my second child. And then my brother, the one who had been abusing me chronically, he got married as well and had a baby, baby girl. So I'm about 23 at this point. No one ever knew about my abuse, not my husband, no one. And all of a sudden I realized there's a little girl that is going to be living with that abusive brother. And if I don't say something, I'm going to be partly at fault for whatever might happen to her. And it was a horrible, horrible situation Mm. because I knew that I would not be believed I didn't know if my marriage would be ruined. I didn't know how I would be viewed by my family members or if they would feel shamed. <laughs> Certainly I did. And it was, it was a tough period of time. And I first broke the silence to my husband because I felt that he needed to know. And, our, and during that time, our marriage was suffering because I was just going through this emotional turmoil and I hated myself and I was getting angrier and angrier and I wasn't, wasn't abusing my children, but I wasn't being a nice mother. I wasn't being, I wasn't peaceful. I wasn't at peace. And so I, I broke the silence to him first and he believed me and said he would stand by me and help me through the process. So that was wonderful. And I got into some counseling and the counselor first, I went to one counselor who I knew right away wasn't going to work for me because the first question out of her mouth, when I told her about my history, she said, do you want to divorce your husband? (laughs) And I said, no, (laughs) I didn't see her again, (laughs) but I did find a counselor that told me something almost a little, even more scarier than that. She said, now, are you willing to forgive your brother? And at that point, I said, no, I was thinking, I'm the victim here. Why would you even suggest that? But her comment back to me was, well, if you aren't willing to at least work toward forgiveness, and she said, I'm not asking you to do it tomorrow or a year from now or before you die. She said, but if you're not working toward being able to forgive what happened to you, then I can't help you heal. So I said, okay. I am willing to think about the possibility that that might be possible someday. So I began to work with her and she helped me to identify who I should break the silence to next, who would be most likely to believe me and that kind of thing. And so I went through that process and there were some people who didn't 
didn't believe me. Well, well, they did believe me, but were very shocked. But the only person who I think really didn't believe me was my mother. And that started a path of, of sort of some bad, a bad relationship with her, which never fully healed. And, uh, but there was a point when I was able to forgive. In fact, it, it happened so gradually, I wasn't even aware that it was really happening. But as I became stronger, as I shared my story, as it became easier to tell, and as it was less emotional each time I told it, and just more matter of fact, I realized that I had no animosity whatsoever toward my brother any longer. And my husband asked me if I'd ever voiced to him that I had forgiven him. And I realized I hadn't. And he said, well, maybe, maybe that's the next step is to let him know. Mm. Now, at this point, my brother's life was horrible. He had been in several broken relationships. He'd had three children out of wedlock. He had been arrested several times for similar crimes that he had committed with me. And he was having a hard time holding down a job and just, it was, it was a miserable life. And I flew home because at this point I was living in Washington, but I had grown up in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And I flew home to just see my brother and tell him that I forgave him. And he cried and we hugged and his life completely changed. He became a different person. And I realized that my lack of forgiveness in his mind was actually making him the victim mm. that the tables had turned. And for so many years he had power over me, but now I was the one that was holding the power over him. And when I released that power, that power of forgiveness, which is just transformative, it really did change his life. And he did things differently. He shaped up, he was no longer a criminal. He did everything he needed to, to clear his record. And he became a better father and held down a good job. And, and it was amazing what forgiveness did for me, but it was more amazing what it did for him. And I think he was able to forgive himself at that point. So, uh, that brother and I are still, we're close and he still struggles with some things and, you know, he probably will for his whole life, but he tries every day to be better than he was the day before. So I think for both of us, we have, we've changed a lot. And, and those bad things in life have, have come to lead us to places we never thought possible and made us who we are for good or for bad. <laughs> so it, it, it's wow. I mean, I just don't have uh, words to, uh, uh, describe what you just shared, but it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that you evolved through these experiences and reached a point of forgiveness because forgiveness is not an easy thing to do for many people. And, and it really have to be emotionally uh, generous to really be able to willing and uh, to give somebody the, the gift of forgiveness, including yourself. So I want to kind of touch upon that a little bit as to what what do you think enables some people when they go through uh, an experience that is really hard on them, that some are willing to forgive and able to forgive mm-hmm. while some hang on to it. And I know that there are so many people out there in the world that are victims of lots of different things and they're unable to forgive and let go. So really the question that I'm trying to get to is, what makes some people let go and forgive? And what are the elements of forgiveness? Some people, I think, enjoy the idea of victimhood. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But I think victimhood can give you reasons to fail. It can give you reasons to be unhappy. It can give you excuses to not accomplish what you hope to accomplish. And there have been times in my life when I've actually been afraid to succeed because I don't know if I can handle that. And forgiveness might be the same way for some people is that they begin to identify themselves 
as this victim. And that's the only identity they have. And until they can see another type of identity they can achieve or someone else they can be, forgiveness will be difficult because they have someone to blame for the failures that they might be experiencing. So forgiveness is really an empowering ability to to understand that you, no matter what happened to you, which you are 0% responsible for, but you are 100% responsible for what you do next Mm. and for where you take your life despite what's happened to you. Forgiveness is part of that. And I really believe that if you can find, first of all, love of yourself, if you can realize that you were a victim and you were manipulated in some way. And if that person, if you're not forgiving, they're still manipulating you. They're still holding that over your head if you're unwilling to, to let it go. And it's not easy, but it is worth it. And the anger that people feel when they're unable to forgive affects everything. It affects every aspect of their life in relationships and not just with family, but with everybody. And so forgiveness is, is an empowering ability to show absolute love. And you have to love yourself first, but when you can get to that point and then love another person who's hurt you and just say, you're not going to manipulate me. You're not going to control my emotions any longer. I'm going to let this go. And I don't have to be your best friend. I don't have to spend time with you. I don't have to see you again if I don't want to, but I want you to know I'm releasing this and I'm giving it back to you. You can do what you want with it, but I'm no longer going to let it rule who I am. I'm going to identify myself differently. It's not easy, but it can be done. And it should be something that we're all working toward. And then you get to a point, I've got to a point where I can, it's easier to forgive other people when, when I feel like I've been wronged, I can say, all right, I know that this is not going to be good to hold on to. I need to let it go and just realize that that person probably didn't necessarily mean to hurt me the way they did. So I'm going to just let it go and give them the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not going to let them do it again. You know, I'm going to have some strength and control that situation more. That happened with my mom. Eventually my, my father passed away and my mother used that as a way to, to continue talking bad about him. Even, even though he was no longer here, could not defend himself. It led to a breaking finally of our relationship. And I just said, I can't, I can't have a a relationship with you anymore because there is no good. It doesn't lift me up any longer. It doesn't make me feel better about myself. And I need to let go of that relationship. I've said, I forgive you for all of that, mother, I forgive you, but I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. I'll talk to you once in a while, but the conversation will contain this, this, and this subject matter and, and not any of that. And if you can't do that, then we won't talk at all. And it gave me strength to, to lay that groundwork down for that relationship to be what I needed it to, to be and not to let it be manipulated manipulated any longer by her. And so I no longer have a relationship with my mother. Mm. The interesting issue with that, though, is that she has Alzheimer's and she's forgotten all of those things. And uh, I feel bad for her. She's not been able to work through the processes in her life. She's not been able to get rid of a lot of her anger. And now she can't remember it, which I suppose is a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how things change and how things end up. But um, letting go of those relationships that are toxic is also an important part of forgiving. Wow. I want to switch gears a little bit here and uh, ask you about growing up, who were your mentors and uh, were there any people that you idolized growing up and that somebody who fascinated you and you wanted to be, uh, you mentioned uh, Gene uh, Robinson uh, as far as uh, those masters, Mm -hmm. but before that, were there any movie stars or rock stars that influenced you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I idolized 
Charlton Heston. (laughs) (laughs) He was an actor that was probably my grandfather's age, but he would make these movies where he was always this hero and he'd swoop in and he would take the the maiden out of the horrible situation she was in, you know, and I, 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 that's what I wanted for someone to do for me. And when people asked me who my boyfriend was when I was young, I would say it's Charlie, meaning Charlton Heston. You know, I remember, I remember going to girls camp every summer and carving into a tree or carving into all Jackie plus Charlie, you know, and who's Charlie? And I would never tell him it was actually Charlton Heston, but I just, I think it was, it was the father that I felt like I needed and didn't have. But I will say that I had, my dad was a wonderful person. But because my mother was so manipulative in their relationship as well, I don't think he was strong enough to be the father he really wanted to be. And I didn't know him very well while I grew up. It was after I got married and moved into a home about a block away from my dad and my stepmom that I finally got to know my dad. And I realized he wasn't the horrible ogre that my mother had portrayed him as. So I did have a good relationship with my father prior to his passing. But I also had a wonderful stepfather, I mentioned before. My stepfather taught me how to learn. Back in those days, we had encyclopedias. Yes. (laughs) And if I was giving a report on something in school or if I had to research something as part of homework or whatever, I knew that he would help me with my homework, but he would always say... Go to the encyclopedia first. If you can't find it in there, then come to me. But that's where you need to look first. And he taught me that I needed to search out information on my own in the proper places. And then I could always ask him for help if I needed it after that. And that was a, it seemed like a simple lesson, but it, but it was a really important lesson because I, I realized that I couldn't just ask somebody for the answer to something. I really needed to research that. And that's helped me in my life in a lot of ways is to not take anything for granted, not rely on someone else's knowledge, but to go out and find out for myself, what does this mean and, and how does that relate to me? So that was, that was someone that I, I idolized a lot was his ability to just be there for me and, and teach me how to learn. I was named for Jacqueline Kennedy. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. My, my twin brother and I were born a week after President Kennedy's assassination. Mm. So we were born, so we were named Jacqueline and John after the Kennedys. So she was also someone, knowing that, she was also someone that I idolized. I thought she was, I think I take my fashion sense from her a little bit because she always looked the part Wherever she was, whether she was at the beach in a bathing suit or whether she was going to a White House dinner, she always looked the proper part. And that's something that I've always tried to emulate myself is dress appropriately for the occasion. And I try to bring in the classic elements of the thing, the her style and put it into my own style. So that's someone that inspired me in different ways and in the ways of fashion. But, um, so I did have some great people that I looked up to and, and, uh, still do. That's uh, fascinating. What what are your favorite hobbies and interests? Now I know, uh, I don't even know if you have any time for uh, hobbies and interests, (laughs) given the kind of accomplishments you got going on there, but uh, what would you like to do on your day off and, uh, how do you spend your weekends? And uh... Well, I am married to a rock star. My husband is a musician. And our children are musicians. We spend a lot of time doing musical things. He's got a gig or my daughter's got a gig or something like that. And so we grew up, when our kids were growing up, we were spending a lot of time with their, on their focus and helping them to become who they wanted to be. At this point in my life, you're right, I'm really busy, and I don't know that I have a lot of time for hobbies. And sometimes I will take up new hobbies, and they're a huge focus for a while, and then I don't have time for it anymore, and I do something different, and I spend a lot of time on that, and then I find <laughs> out I don't have time for that anymore. I, I, used to, I took up quilting at one time. 
I took some quilting lessons and, and I made two or three quilts. Wow. And then I took up canine agility. I had Australian shepherds and I wanted to spend more time with the dogs. And so we, I took them to lessons where they learned how to do all these obstacles on the agility courses. And then we did trials and went to competitions with with them on occasion even up to Canada and down to Tacoma and that was fun and then when they both got old <laughs> that that wasn't possible anymore and they've since passed away other hobbies are writing I blog I haven't blogged in quite a while because with the workshops I've been doing for youth that's been taking a lot of my focus but I really enjoyed blogging while I was doing that, and I still have my blog, and once in a while I'll share my opinion on something or whatever. Reading, I enjoy reading, but I very seldom get an opportunity to just sit down and read a book. Also, I read little short stories and things like that when I can, but I can't tell you the last time I actually read an entire book, unless I've been on an airplane or something. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, hobbies, I think if I could just sit on the beach for a few hours a day, life would be about perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> so having, uh, having had this incredible life experiences and uh, so many accomplishments, when you look back at your life, uh, I mean, well, how would you define success? And what's your definition of greatness? Well, success for me... And this is going to sound a little corny because when people ask me, you know, what do you, who do you want to be or what do you want to do in life? And my answer is, I really want to make a difference in the life of others. And that sounds really corny, but it's the truth. I want to be able to influence other people, to empower them, to make better choices and to achieve something that they want to achieve. Zig Ziglar said it best when, when he said, you can get everything you want in life when you help enough other people get what they want in life. And that's kind of how I would define success for myself is if I can help others be who they want to be or get what they want, then I'm successful. It doesn't have to be that I make all this money or I go on this fantastic speaker circuit or anything like that, or I get this certain amount of fame, that matters less to me than helping someone else achieve that. And greatness, greatness to me is someone who lives their life authentically, someone who lives with those principles of self where they sacrifice for, the, for other people, where they focus on empowering their own life through their choices and the lives of others, where they can love with such deep charity that they give of themselves on a regular basis, not just when someone needs it, but they look for opportunities to serve other people. And when they develop this characteristic of being a friend to everyone, when they're, when they're likable, when they're approachable, when they think about others and and do do what others need that's that's greatness to me that's that's being an exceptional leader is when you can sacrifice and power love and and develop friendship with other people and and have that loyalty as one of your characters I, I totally love it uh, so what I'm hearing you say is it's really about service and being authentic and making a difference for others and uh, that's such a beautiful answer. Uh, what do you think stops people from achieving their fullest potential? Well, I think it's, it's hard to say because everybody's different. But the people that I know who seem to be stumped or who seem to be on this path of, I just can't get where I, where I want to go, are the people who've who are focusing so much on the achievement. They're focusing so much on making the money, focusing so much on having the fame that they have forgotten other people. 
And so I, I have learned in my life that when I am going through the greatest challenges, I need to serve other people. It seems that, you know, society will say, oh man, if you're going through that, you really need to slow down and take care of yourself and, you know, be kind, take some time off work, go on vacation, do, do something for yourself. And that might be fine and good, but I, I don't think that's what helps us get out of those slumps. What really has helped me to realize what life is about is when I forget my own problems and challenges and I go out and find somebody that I can help. Someone that needs my help more than I need it. Someone who needs a friend, someone who needs a meal brought in, someone who needs comfort, someone who needs a job, someone who needs clothes. Those are the ways that I get out of those slumps that I'm in. And I think that maybe that's what the world is missing is the idea that go go do something good for somebody else. Get away from your own situation and go do something good. I, I love the story of Robert Herjavec. He's one of the the sharks in the, the television show Shark Tank. Multi-millionaire, <laughs> tech giant, right? Mm-hmm. A man with houses all over the world in need of absolutely nothing. And yet, in 2011, I think it was, his wife told him she wanted a divorce. Mm. And it crushed him. He had ignored his family in some way. And the realization that all the success he'd had meant nothing without the most valuable relationship that he had, he became so distraught that he was suicidal. Again, here's a man who has everything. And yet divorce was what led him to feel completely worthless enough that he was considering ending it all. Luckily, his friend uh, is the pastor at our own Seattle Union Gospel Mission. And he said, Robert, you need to come down here to Seattle from Toronto where he was living. You need to come down here to Seattle and do some good for somebody else. So we had him come to the Seattle Union Gospel Mission and dressed him in some of the rags and tattered clothing that were there at the mission that some of the people there wear. And he lived among the homeless men. He fed them dinners, served them, made their beds, cleaned up after them. He stayed there for a month, came out a completely different man, realized that it was love. It was charity. It was, it was service. That's what he'd been missing. And that was more valuable than everything he'd ever earned. And all of the houses that he had, he realized that he missed out on those relationships by not practicing charitable love. And it completely changed him. Saved his life. Amazing. That's really amazing. And it's it's really uh, taking the focus away from me and really focusing on others can be such a life transform transforming experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I totally completely agree with you on that. What based on, I mean, I, I would like to say uh, to the audience that definitely, uh, you know, you should get Jackie Bailey's book. It's called self-centered leadership, becoming influential, intentional, and exceptional. And it was published in 2014. And the book is available in Amazon and paperback and Kindle. And one of the questions I have for you, Jackie, is uh, besides your book, uh, which I highly recommend everybody should get, is that what would you say are some of the books that you would recommend and any workshops or seminars that uh, you would suggest that people should uh, try on Mm -hmm. for their lives? Well, um, I bought Ryan Avery's book. I can't remember the complete title. Is it Speak, Lead? can't remember what the title is right now. It's, he is the 2012 world champion of public speaking. And he wrote a book about how to develop a world champion speech. The elements he has in there are fabulous and became sort of my Bible as I was practicing for that same competition. 
Another book I just recently purchased was from Randy J. Harvey. His book is titled Messages That Matter. And not only does he incorporate the elements in his message about winning a world championship speech because he was the 2004 winner of the world championship of public speaking. But he basically talks about how we can in our message reach every part of the audience's brain by using different elements that capture their attention and that makes them feel the emotions you want them to feel simply by the words that you use and, and the way that you use them. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting theory that he has. And I haven't read the entire book, but I'm enjoying what I've read so far. Uh, the book that you mentioned about Ryan Every is called Speaker, Leader, Champion. There you go. And uh, I had a chance to listen to Randy Harvey uh, at uh, the last conference mm-hmm. and amazing guy, uh, fantastic background and what he's accomplished in the field of education and uh, and even law practice. It is incredible. Uh, definitely highly recommend checking out uh, Randy Harvey. Mm-hmm. A hypothetical question for you, Jackie, is if you could go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old, what advice would you give her? Well, that 20-year-old self was a very unhappy person. She hated herself. She struggled with identifying her value and what her purpose was might be. So if I could go back and talk to her, I would tell her that she has something to live for. That the pain that she is feeling at that moment is short-lived and that she's going to find the help she needs that there are going to be people who come into her life who will carry her (laughs) through that healing process and that she's going to make it out okay. I, I remember telling myself then that if I can get through this, I'm going to be strong. And that's what I would tell her, that you're going to get through this and you're going to be stronger than you can imagine at this point. And you're going to be able to share your message to a world audience someday. And you'll be able to help many people work through the same pain that you're feeling. So don't, don't let it go. Don't give up. Don't hide under that rock like you want to. Wow. Stay strong. That's uh, that's so inspiring. Uh, I'm sure all our in our audiences, the young adults who are listening to this message, would be inspired by that. We're going to change gears here, and uh, we're going to move into something called the rapid fire round, Jackie. And this is where I ask you a question, and you you know you blurt out whatever the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay. And of course, uh, if you want to elaborate on it, obviously you can go ahead and uh, do that. But essentially, this is the rapid fire round. So, are you ready, Jackie? Sure. Hit me with it. <laughs> All right. So the first question, I know you mentioned that your husband's a rock star, and I'm curious, what rock star besides your husband has impressed you? Uh, I fell in love with a band called Guster several years ago. They're not real well known, but they're actually an alternative rock band, maybe even an alternative pop band. But they have amazing percussion. Their percussionist plays with his hands, no sticks, and he tapes them all together. And the sound that he gets when he plays is just deep. It's, it's amazingly strong, and it adds so much to the music. So I love the band Guster. But my favorite singer is Brad Paisley. He is a country artist, and he's an amazing guitarist as well. So he's not really a rock star. He's a country star, but he is an amazing guitarist. And uh, I met him once, and I actually think I'm related to him. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> <laughs> 
So if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? Oh, you know what? I always thought I would enjoy being a medical uh, forensic scientist or something like that mm. from a medical examiner. I, I think I would enjoy doing surgery on people where I knew that I wasn't going to kill them <laughs> because they were already <laughs> dead. But I, I think I would enjoy the investigative nature of, of doing an autopsy on someone and trying to figure out how they died and what was the situation during their death. Mm. The next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? Um, well, I'm going to wax religious here for a second because I would love to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would love to have been there. Mm. And if you could ask God one question, what would that be? The question I have always asked him, well, there's two. During the most difficult time of my life when I was healing from my abuse, I kept asking, what do you want from me now? What do I do now? And since then, the question I always ask is, are you happy with what I'm doing? Are you proud of me? And do you love me? Hmm. And the final rapid fire round question for you, Jackie, is if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? Go do some good today. Go serve someone. Forget yourself and go to work for someone else. Wow. That's beautiful. And now moving on to our final section. And, uh, and this is just the last few questions for you, Jackie, before we wrap it up is uh, what is your current pa personal passion project and what are you looking forward to uh, in the next six months or a year? Or right now, my passion lies in kids, in the youth of today. I am excited about facilitating an opportunity for them to find their message, to develop that message, and learn how to deliver it with impact. And I'm excited about helping them to see their potential as not just public speakers, because we're not all going to be public speakers or professional speakers, but to help them recognize that they are strong and they have a message and they can share it with the world in a, in a wonderful way that will change lives. And so in the next six months to a year, I, help, I hope to be able to give, just be giving those workshops to have that is a full-time possibility and um, be able to support my family doing it as well. That would be awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, how can people reach you if they want to connect with you and uh, uh, want to know more about the youth communication and leadership workshops? How can they contact you? Well, they can go to my website, which is JackieBaileySpeaks.com. They can email me which is Jackie at EmeraldCityConsulting.com. And they can always call me too. Can I get my phone number out? <laughs> or do I dare? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we'll stick to okay, the website. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, I highly recommend that uh, please uh, get Jackie Bailey's book. It's again called Self-Centered Leadership, Becoming Influential, Intentional, and Exceptional. And it's available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Uh, before we uh, get to our final questions, Jackie, uh, anything else that I may not have asked you and you would like to share with our audiences? Well, I just want to share that this is awesome. Cal, it's been great to spend time with you. I'm so glad that you're doing this. This is going to be a wonderful podcast. I hope your listeners purchase every one of them and, and, and listen to the series that you've put together. I think it will be fabulous. And I hope that you have success with this as well. Thank you so much. And uh, one of the questions I'd like to ask our guests to wrap it up it is, uh, what are three things you're grateful for in life today? Now, today I am so grateful for my grandchildren. I have four wonderful grandchildren, Sam, Miles, Etta, and Cece. And they 
They are such a gift because, as I mentioned, there was a time when I didn't want to live anymore. And I'm so glad that I did because when I, when my grandchildren look at me, I know they value me and I would have missed out on that had I not stuck around. So I'm glad that I did. I'm glad for all of my struggles. I'm grateful for them because I wouldn't be who I am today without them. And I wouldn't have what I have today without them. So my grandchildren are the epitome of, of what I'm most grateful for because it's, it's sort of the end of that, that journey for me. It's the, it's the whole reason to have kids is to be a grandparent. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, really uh, beautiful and very inspiring. And I, Jackie, I would like to acknowledge you for an incredible journey that you took on um, with everything that life threw at you at such a young age. And really using that struggles to not only overcome those, but really becoming an inspiration uh, and a role model for all the other people out there and take, and showing it to the world that uh, challenges are in fact a platform to help grow emotionally, spiritually, and, uh, and really uh, developing yourself to the highest version of yourself. And uh, it's such an incredible inspiration that you are for not only for us and within the Toastmasters community, but uh, within the community that you're part of. Uh, and so thank you for being you, Jackie, and uh, just uh, just incredible uh, just getting to know you and learning more about you and uh, listening to your stories and your speeches. So thank you. Thank you, Cal. And uh, one final question, that this, this is how we wrap up our interview, is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Well, I think we should listen to the wisdom of anybody. And wisdom is putting your experience, the, the, the lessons that you've learned into practical use. That's what I believe wisdom is. And so when we can take all the, the crud and the garbage that we've had to endure and we can turn it into something positive and good, that's wisdom. And we've all had those experiences. So listening to each other, learning from each other, sharing our experiences with each other. And there's nothing more valuable than that. And that that's plays into that aspect of friendship is having friends that are close enough that you can share your history with and, and learn theirs and find out that we really all have the same thing in common. Our challenges may be different, but they are devastating at times, but they're all something that will lift us and make us better if we, if we make the right choices after, after the tragedy. So that's why I believe friends are important. And yeah. I wish I had more, actually. But yeah, my, my friend, the wisdom from my friends is something that I cherish. Wow, beautiful. Uh, this has been a fascinating and incredible interview, as I expected it to be. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, authenticity and candid answers. I really, really appreciated our conversation. And with that, those of us listening, uh, we'll uh, wrap it up. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.